Welcome to the Scale Up Your Business podcast. In this podcast, we talk about what it takes to go from startup to scale up and beyond. How to significantly grow your business, create freedom, build wealth, and live life on your terms. Featuring some very special guests and experts to give you advice and direction on your journey. And now, introducing your host, entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hi, it's Nick, and welcome to the show for this week. We are back with Entrepreneur in Focus, and I have a guest today that I have been wanting to have on this show for literally years, so I'll get into that in a second. Uh, First and foremost, um, just a shout out again to everybody who has been joining the Scale Up Your Business community on Facebook. It's growing by the week. We are literally, you know, in some cases getting hundreds of people joining every single week. So I encourage you to go and do that. Um, Just go and search on Facebook. You'll see my name there. You'll see a couple of different images from the show so that you'll be able to recognize that. And as I said, it's a free group private group so you've got to join it um, we don't kind of have people in there just spamming each other with various things it is there as a community to help but I encourage you to go and join it and participate as I said I'm there all the time so scale up your business community on Facebook but today on the show we have Gurav Sinha now Gurav is a good friend of mine for years he's the founder and CEO of Insignia Worldwide which is a brand strategy agency based in Dubai He's also an entrepreneur, investor, author, philanthropist. His book, Compassion Inc., is amazing, absolutely amazing. So poignant for where we are right now through this whole COVID thing. It's around unleashing the power of empathy in both business and life. The importance of that, the importance of simplicity and perspective. It's such a good book. But Gurav's on the show today, and as I said, we've known each other for a long time. And we've had beers together, we've had dinner together you know, stayed at each other's places, all that sort of stuff. And he's inspired me massively over the years, you know, from what he's created from very, very humble beginnings. And I think a lot of my entrepreneurial journey is is always what I've learnt and what I've noticed from others. And Gurav is definitely someone I would add there as a mentor to me and certainly an inspiration to me. So it's great to have him on the show. So we're going to get into kind of his journey. Um, we're going to kind of get into what you should be thinking about now during COVID-19. We're also going to get into stuff like leadership and, and how important things like self-belief and mindset are. This, this, it's a great conversation, a really rich conversation. So I'm absolutely excited for you to listen to the show. Okay, so that is it. Entrepreneur in Focus. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business. Finally, Gurav Sinha. Hi, everybody. It's Nick here, and welcome to another episode of Scale Up Your Business. I'm delighted to be back with the Entrepreneur in Focus series, and today we have Gurav Siddha, who's a good friend of mine, but that's not the reason he's on here. (laughs) The reason he's on here is that he has got an amazing business. He's got an amazing story. He is an entrepreneur, investor, author, philanthropist. He's the founder and CEO of Insignia Worldwide, and he has an amazing book called Compassion, Inc., and we're going to get into all things unleashing the power of empathy in life and business today. So, Gurav, welcome to Scale Up Your Business. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. It's great to be here. Excellent. Well, let's, get, let's kick it off, mate. So, we've known each other for a while. <laughs> it's got to be, what, over 10 years? Yes, 10 years. 10 years or more, I guess. 10 years or more. Yeah. And you haven't changed, but I have. 
Oh, I don't know. I think, I think, I think we both look very good for our age. <laughs> but let's, let's kick off, mate. We've been talking about you coming on Scale Your Business for a while. And I think part of the reason for that is, you know, you've, you've made um, entrepreneurship and the stuff that you've done. It's been such a huge part of your life. And the thing I've always liked and, and I think admired about you, Gurab, is, is you've had a very successful business. You've been very humble around that. But you've also been massively focused on wider contribution. So to kick things off, can you just share with the audience today your story? I and mean, go back a bit, kind of, you know, where you started from and what you've created, and then we'll get into kind of what you're doing now. So, you know, Nick, as you know, like, you know, I, I am a classic example of an economic immigrant, uh, born and brought up in India. Uh, I've worked in India until the age, I was, I was, I think, in India until the age of 20. And I moved to Dubai uh, because I wanted to get out of India and better my prospects. And like any other Indian immigrant would have in the, you know, still does, you know, with regards to improving their lives. And, uh, you know, I was very lucky. I found myself in a position where I had a job in Dubai. I borrowed $200 from my mom, and which I gave back to her. And then, uh, and then found myself on a plane uh, in Dubai. And I just didn't look back after that, you know, so... It was an opportunity for me to really just get reincarnated and try and see how I could, you know, shape a life which uh, allowed me to contribute back towards my family and just make sure that I could sort of live my dreams. I was 20, young, naive, bed behind the years. So that's how it all started. And uh, and I've been in Dubai for 27 years now. You know, so I'm 47, today, 47 as of now. So 27 years of, of being on a roller coaster. In many ways, because life is exactly that, right? So it's, it's you have all sorts of twists and turns and ups and downs, and and it's been a it's been a period of discovery, you know, just to figure out what it is that I love doing, what it is, how can I give back? So I think it's it's been a it's and I'm and, and I really honestly think life is about just having lots of questions, and I've just been in a position where I've been challenged and questioned enough times, and then trying to answer that. So so that's how the journey started, and I. Came to Dubai 27 years ago, started my career as a brand strategist, started working for a small Canadian agency, um, you know, then sort of reached a point where I wanted to get a big uh, multinational brand under my belt. So I joined IPG, which is a New York listed network. I worked for Lohout Spink, which became, you know, I think uh, eventually became Lintas. And uh, then I left them because I had the worst job ever in that context. I had the worst boss ever. So I refused to work for that chap. Um, and then found myself um, <laughs> desperate. There's a great irony, right? So you, you start your career, you work for a small firm, you're doing great things, you're valued and you're loved. And then your career aspiration says, I must get a big company name under my belt. So then you go and find. So the first lesson is always look for a great boss, never look for a great job. That's the first thing that I took away. Well, they, they always say, don't they, that people don't leave companies, they leave people. And they, sure. and they, and they stay with people too because it's that. Yeah. So I, I totally, most entrepreneurs I speak to kind of, you know, when they get into entrepreneurship, it's for that reason. They, <laughs> they... First, first lesson of entrepreneur here is if, if stars don't work for idiots, they work for other stars. So unless you behave like a star, you're never going to attract star talent. So, you know, so there's, there's that part of it. So I, I eventually left... Uh, that company and then joined, I was very lucky to join Hilton Hotels and I became their head of, uh, head of marketing for the Middle East region uh, and managed the Hilton, Conrad and Waldorf brands for them. And then eventually, you know, I was, I sort of took that job as a sort of opportunity to go and learn hospitality. You know, just somebody was paying me to go and become, get reincarnated 
from bringing a brand strategist to becoming a hotelier. And that's literally what I did. I just invested all the time and effort and the opportunity to just learn this obsession with learning, you know, insatiable curiosity, I think is, is part of my DNA. It's just, just, you know, we did that. And I was the first under 30 area director Hilton had ever appointed since Hilton started. That meant every, every hotel from Cairo to Tokyo came under my remit. And, and, and I was very, very lucky. But, you know, the 9-11 happened in 2001. I was asked to move to Singapore to the area office, was located there. I had 10, 12 years of equity in the Middle East. I didn't want to get up and move to a different part of the world. It was a vulnerable time, not very different from what we're sort of experiencing now, you know, this sort of sense of fear and uncertainty. And, and it was during that fear and uncertainty that I decided not to take that job and do the most bravest thing I ever did, which is set up insignia. So I actually did, and maybe, you know, call me 30, I was 30 years old at the time, so maybe a degree of, of naivety for not knowing the unknown. But I think, I think that also really is, is part of the, the, the whole journey of becoming uh, you know, successful in business in whichever context or whatever you're doing. So I set up, I set up Insignia in 2003, just with the hangover of 2001, 9-11 and all the geopolitical issues we were facing because I realized I was filling a need. You know, when I was a client, I could never find a company that could do what I wanted them to do. You know, the same people selling BlackBerry phones were trying to fill hotel rooms and it just didn't make sense. So, so I married branding and, and hospitality and, and then focused on building a business to solve a problem on behalf of my clients. And, and that's been the journey so far, but we've changed over the last 17 years. You know, we've serviced over 200 hotels in 20 countries. We've launched over 40 hotels. We've branded nations. You know, we've branded cities. We work with tourism boards. And we are, at the heart of it, we are placemakers. And this is something that really, which is what also, you know, placemaking, it's about culture, it's understanding human needs, you know, what do people want in life? How do you fulfill that? You know, what's the reason of a, of a, of a you know, of buffet breakfast? Like who wants to eat such a big meal at breakfast? Just there are all these issues you sort of start challenging and you start questioning how people make choices and the, the way they behave. And I think that's really been fascinating. It's been part of my, my journey is just being an anthropologist, understanding human behavior. Why do people behave a certain way? Why do they want certain things? And, and we've been gloriously successful with God's grace in the whole journey. We've been very blessed with great people, great clients. And, and it's taken us, you know, I remember when we started the business, you know, we had no money. You know, my wife and I were working till three o'clock in the morning. We sold balloons at one point to make ends meet. We did everything we had to the first three years, really difficult for us. And then we found a sort of a rhythm and then with that rhythm, we found some sort of level of credibility and authority. And I think in business, you know, quite honestly, you don't need an MBA to be successful. I think, you know, you, momentum is more important than direction. Because unless you're moving, you can't figure out where you need to go. No, and, you, and, you know, there's, there's so many things here. I just want to hold you up for a sec because, as I said at the very beginning, you're a humble guy. Right. So just to go back a step, you know, you've kind of you've taken the brave step of leaving, you know, your home country. Um, and I take it turned up to Dubai at a time when obviously it was growing and that sort of thing. But did you have many friends and contacts in Dubai at that point in time? Or were you just really going there to make, make your mark? No, I, I had a job. I, I, was, I was offered a job by an Indian sort of you know, businessman who, who works in education here, a very successful gentleman. And he'd offered me a job when I met him in, in, in Bombay. And so I came with a sort of an appointment letter and a, and, and a, and a suitcase and $200. <laughs> 
And I, I love that. And that, was, and that was it. And I'd never sat in a Ford Focus car before. I'd never sat in an air-conditioned car before. <clears throat> so all these things were pretty exciting when, in 1993. Wow. And then, and then I want to jump forward a little bit. So obviously you had a, a successful career, as you said, you ended up working with the Hilton Group. What was the, what was the decision point to leave that great job? I mean, obviously you said, obviously there was the, the 9-11 piece and all that, but to then go into entrepreneurship, because that's a step. I understand solving problems, but it, did you have a spark of entrepreneurship all the way through and that was your calling or was it just more opportunistic than that? No, I think, I think, you know, there's an entrepreneurial DNA in, in the family. You know, my mom's a businesswoman, you know, and has been for 40 years. My brother's, you know, a successful entrepreneur. So I think it's sort of an element of the, the sort of, you know, exposure to the spirit of entrepreneurship came from my mom, I guess. You know, she sort of seeded that from the early years. But, but I think the, the reason for leaving Hilton was not because I wanted to be just an entrepreneur. I think I think the idea was to solve a problem where I could have a lasting impact. <clears throat> and, I, and I found myself that uh, one of the things I didn't want to do was move to Asia. You know, as an Indian national, you've got mobility issues, you know, get visas for every country you need to go to, all of these conundrums that you have to face, different for a lot of people who live in England and are British or Australian, but it's different. The lens on how you see the world as an Indian immigrant is very different from how, let's say, others see the world who maybe have the privilege of being able to get on a plane and go somewhere and not think about, you know, visas and all the rest of it. So that was a real issue for me, just as part of my, my thought process. I was, you know, I was young. I didn't have a lot of money. I, you know, I didn't want to fall into a corporate lifestyle, which was a cliched version of life for many people who are hoteliers who either end up, you know, dating an Asian lady who's half their age or something cliched like that. So I didn't want to fall into any of those traps. I just, I literally just said, oh, you know what, I want to do something meaningful. I want to do it in a neighborhood I understand. I'm two and a half hours away from my mother if I need to fly to her in case of an emergency. So very simple human decisions. There, there was no strategy. There was no game plan. And, no, and I, no. think, I think that's how it sort of unboxed itself. Well, this is where I want to go to next because you said there the first three years of, of starting Insignia or certainly going into that world of what you've done now successfully for over, well, over a decade or more. Um, just take us through those three years. So when, first and foremost, how you felt, but when you started to know that it was working and, and, and how you, what you did to get to that position. You know, when we, when we started, you know, it was, it was an interesting thing because coming from a corporate, you know, background, you, you're used to having an infrastructure. You're used to having people around you who can either guide you, provide you counsel, you know, do some of the heavy lifting with you. And then suddenly you find yourself, you wake up one day and you've registered a company and, and you realize day one, this is it. You're by yourself. There's nobody, there's no office. So I used to literally, but then you have to create some structure and routine. So I used to dress up every day at nine o'clock, put on a suit, walk down the stairs, get to my dining table, take my jacket off, start off my laptop and start working. I had a sort of a sense of a, a routine being coded. And, and, then, and then the hustle, you know, then you realize that, gosh, cash flow is at the heart of everything you do. You know, if you, if you don't have money and if you don't have that coming in, it doesn't matter what sort of a genius you are. You know, so, 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 that, so the first rude awakening in year one was that you can't ever build a business that is either a feast or a famine. You know, a business, a business and a revenue stream should be exactly the same as how you eat your food lots of small meals and the occasional feast. You can't live off a feast all the time. So I think that's what you need. In business, you need lots of consistent revenue 
and then the occasional big, big, you know, milestone moment of a cracking deal when you can high five each other. So that's something I, I struggled with. I, I didn't realize that my first year I was chasing the big numbers. I wanted to do half a million dollar deals. Everything below that seemed like a waste of time. And then you start realizing you're sort of spending your savings and, and another month goes and nobody's made a decision. And then another month goes and now your savings are getting depleted. And then you suddenly realize that, you know, actually it's the small, simple things that matter most to clients. And that's what really matters to business. So that was my big, big learning. And I think Lucy, she sort of was a catalyst of that who one day came and said to me, listen, you're, you know, you're chasing these big, big projects. You're on a plane to Qatar. You're trying to, everything had to be, you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars minimum at the time. And then we forgot, and then we realized how quickly, you know, even $500 is, is really important in business, you know? So and $500 today versus half a million dollars, which might never turn up, you know, the logic just, and I think it took well, three years to figure that out. It's funny. It's one of the most memorable conversations we had a number of years ago where I remember you saying something, because I use your example quite a lot. There's a, just a kind of, uh, reframe a little bit. I talk about um, solving real problems, but being very, very focused on the proposition that you have and then aligning that to a very clear market, right? It's, um, when I used to work at Boston Consulting Group years ago, we used to call that the simple equation. So actually, if you understand the needs of one very clear target audience and you can solve those needs very, very well, then that works. But I remember you saying that obviously all your positioning is around is around hospitality um, and more than that and, and, and sort of luxury travel and those sort of areas. But you said to me once, you said that, you know, sometimes the, the people will come to you to do some design work or some branding work. They may not be in your niche. You won't necessarily put the case study on your website, but you say yes to that stuff all the time. Yeah, and, I so. yeah. and I thought that was really clever because actually you're right, because it comes back to the point that, you know, $500 or pounds right now in the COVID situation can be a lot of money for someone, you know, just to keep the business going. But you've had that philosophy for a long time. You see, there are two parts to this. And, I, and this is how I like to say it. I think, first of all, Let's not over-intellectualize business. I think hard work and honesty creates dignity. Whatever you're doing, I'll clean a toilet if I had to, to keep my kids safe. You know what I mean? So, so there's dignity in anything that you do. Number one, if you're cleaning a toilet, be the best toilet cleaner in the world so that there's nobody who can leave a toilet more sparkling than you would. So an obsession with commitment to executing really exceptionally well, whether it's something as simple as cleaning a toilet, running business, that's one part of it. Second is singularity is at the heart of it. You know, you have to be single-minded. You can't be everything to everybody because it's the fastest way to be not, nobody to anybody. So, so I think that focus strategically is required, but you need, you need to be able to tactically maneuver. You know, it's one thing to have a strategy and it's another thing to, to be able to sort of come out of the trenches. So if you find yourself in a pothole or an issue, or come, you do what you need to do, but not everything you do needs to be, you know, shown to the world in the context of, you know, let's say, I want to explain this in a practical way. You know, not everything you do in life needs to be branded. So just because you're good in finance doesn't mean you open an accounting firm. Just because you're good at design doesn't mean you open a design firm. Let's say you have, so your purpose as a business has to have a sing, level of singularity. In that, we have definitely, we've we definitely helped what, what we call our non-core, we've serviced our non-core segments because they served a tactical need, but they still applied to the talents that were core to us. So if we were designing a brand narrative, whether it's for a hospital or a hotel, the principles sort of work in a similar way. We're not necessarily at that place, or FMCG to a certain degree. You know, when you're looking at, let's say, an experience in a supermarket, 
an experience in a supermarket versus checking into the lobby of a hotel. Somehow the guiding principles are sort of got some common ground. I'm not passionate about sending people to supermarkets. So, but at that particular point, if I knew how to pay my electricity bill, I'd bloody well make it the most amazing supermarket experience in their life. So, so you do these things tactically. And when you are able to do that, then you go back to doing what you do, which is your love for place making and, and storytelling and, and travel and destination development. Yeah, no, I get it. And in the beginning, when you were, again, just to kind of go there, when you were kind of going and speaking to potential clients and starting to get the first pieces of business, how much was your model, your proposition, you know, what your business is now? How, how clear was that at that stage? Or was it just literally conversations and you built it to some yeah. extent organically from that, from the, from the customer a, conversations? It's a, really, it's a really good question. And, and, and I'm going to break this into two parts because there's something anecdotal I want to share with you. Uh, but part one is I had a broad idea of what I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to get there. Yeah. And I was the first one to admit it. So all I was doing is perpetually asking people, how do I get there? Till some, so I would, I would feed off other people's views, but I'd still do what I wanted to do, if you know what I mean. So, yeah. so I think having such a rigid fenced perspective, you know, it's like climbing up a mountain. You can't track it, the trail until you're at certain points and then you deviate and decide how you want to maneuver. So I didn't have an idea. I do remember what I wanted to do, and I, and I had clarity about hospitality and, and branding and to merge the two. And I remember going to a meeting, and, and I had so many people say to me, don't ever start a business, get another corporate job, 9-11 just happened, there are already 600 agencies in Dubai Media City, who gives a damn about you, you know, how are you going to cut through all of that? And I used to say, I said, listen, you know, guess what? Guess what? I have one thing that no other agency has. They say, what? I said, me. You know, to begin with, I, I'm, I'm not in the room representing them. So I had self-belief that if given a task, I would do it. And I've done every single job. I've delivered invoices. I've written emails. I've followed up on receivables. I've designed ads. I've written media plans. You know, you do what you need to do. And you do it, but you do it with optimism and positivity because nobody wants to hang around with, a, with a, you know, somebody negative, binging person, really. So you don't have the luxury as an entrepreneur to be negative. No. No, no, no. Well, listen, there is so much in what you're saying, which is powerful for this audience. I mean, I, when I started doing this podcast, you know, it's called Scale Your Business, but actually, you know, half the time I don't get into the mechanics of business. I get into mindset. I get into skill set. I get into how you manage your energy, how productive you are. I talk about the person, the leader you have to become, not just the business leader, but the leader sure. kind of in your life. And, and it's those intangibles, if you want to call it that, become very, very um, important, if not critical. To success, and you've talked about most of them actually in this conversation already, which is great. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and I've been, and I've been, you know, listen, I, I've been, uh, I've made so many mistakes. You know, I was egotistical in the early years when we had some, when you know, we had some, you know, quick successes. Suddenly, you think you're invincible, you know, and then you, then you, you know, potentially hire wrong because you're, you're, you know, letting your your heart rule your mind in many ways. So, so I think there are lots of learnings through this whole process. And the one thing that I do take away is that. Is that you know, as I mentioned earlier, stars don't work for idiots. If you want the right people around you, A, you know, you can't do it alone. Whoever you are, whatever you're doing, you can't do it alone. You need people around you. And if those people don't enjoy who you are and what you stand for, you can forget about it. So how do you create a culture of collaboration in a transactional world? That's the distinction of being an employee or an employer. So I think, I think that's fundamentally at the heart of some of the things we need to do. So I, I've made those mistakes. I, I lost good people because maybe I didn't engage with them properly. Maybe my views were not. So collaboration is key. You know, that's one thing you take away. I think and at the heart of it, you've got to be humble. 
Because the reality is, you know, leadership is being like leading from behind. And, you know, there are so many of these $30 wisdom, you know, bumper sticker quotes on, you know, lead from behind and all that sort of stuff that people say. It's intuitive. And if you at the heart of everything, and it's like great design, right? At the heart of everything, which is of value is empathy. Without empathy, like you can't, you can't do anything, you know? So you, so you have to be really empathetic to those around you and they have to service your needs if they are, and I think that's the that's the quid pro quo. That's the relationship you have to have. You let's have get into um, let's get into that because it's funny. I've been, uh, people come to me um, quite a lot recently, and they ask, you know, what's really important right now um, from a perspective of how to manage how how you're feeling through COVID, particularly from a business context. And I talk about it, and you've said it already. The difference between startup and scale up is scale up is the ability to lead others and the ability to build teams and to build culture. Because if you think about it, you can start a business just you at your boardroom table, at your table, sorry, or you in a garage. But when you scale it, it's it's, it's it has to be about more people. It has to be about working in collaboration. Now, I've been saying at the moment the two things that are most important are empathy and competency. And empathy. Yeah. So empathy to ones, I want to get into empathy because I know that's a, a big part of, of your book as well, but empathy in terms of you can't, if you can't understand where someone is right now, if you can't put yourself in that position, if you can't even just sort of say, listen, I understand this may be difficult for you. I might be great, but it might be difficult for you. If you can't connect like that, you, you're not going to be leading very well. And if someone doesn't believe you have the, cap- the capability or the competency to, to, to push through when there's a challenge, I'm talking again from, from the, the business and life perspective, then people are not going to kind of uh, feel, feel that level of certainty and security. So they're the yeah, two things I'm I, talking about. Yeah, I think you can add a third C to it, which is coherence. You know, so sometimes mm. you might not be competent to understand how to solve a problem, but at least you're coherent enough to recognize that there is a problem. Yeah. As long as you can do that, sometimes people rally along with you to figure out how to deliver. Yeah. So, so I think, I think nice, that's... Like it. Yeah, so I think I think there's definitely merit to what you're saying, and I think, um, you know, what's your question to this? I've <laughs> got lost. Well, so. the question, the question, though, we're having, we're chatting away, but the the question is, because you know, you've brought it up beforehand, because your book, Compassionate, right, mm. which is fantastic, the, the first book I think that really starts to talk about the power of empathy. So this has been a kind of a bit of a key point for you all the way through, but I want to talk about this in a bit more detail, because you've said here unleashing the power of empathy in life and business. What do you mean by that? Yes, you know, I had like a minor Jerry Maguire moment. I've been sort of selling hotels to people to spend you know, $800,000, $900,000 room nights and all the rest of it. And then you realize, you know, what are you doing from a consumption point of view? I've become a dad, you know, I've got three kids, my wife runs a business. And one day my wife came and said to me, listen, you know, I don't think we're being good parents. You know, I think we're, we're rubbish parents. We've got three businesses and we're stressed in every direction. And, and we need to recalibrate. We need to figure out what is, you know, there's so many complexities. And I found that we had grown so much so quickly. I was doing nothing that I loved. I was an HR manager. I was figuring out, you know, gratuity accruals and finance. And I was completely, everything I started to do, just because we got successful, I stopped doing the things I loved because the business had grown and I had, you know, senior managers and all the rest. And it was just, it was complicated. And, you know, it was like you were in a fog. And, 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 and we decided, my wife said to me, listen, I'd like us to move to Bali next month. She gave me 30 days to move the kids, us completely, get up and get on a flight and just move to Bali for four months. And she wanted to put our kids in the green school there so that they could go and educate them. So she wanted to just completely unhinge us and sort of say, let's take a little hard look in the mirror and come back and see how it goes. And we did. You know, I 
this is one of the bravest things I did. You know, just we left the business in the hands of the employees and said, I'm off. And it was during that time of some time and distance that I wrote the book. Uh, I started there, the genesis was there. And I had this realization because, you know, you distance yourself from your own reality and then you look back and say, you know, am I doing the things I need to do? And I realized that fundamentally branding and brands and consumption and capitalism have a fundamental tumor. And, and it starts from the fact that we are mindlessly obsessed with instant gratification. We are spending more money than we need to. We are, you know, living in what I call an era of debt capitalism. You can only grow if you're leveraged, you know, so you need finance from that levels. And then brands are telling, hollow, making hollow promises. You know, they say, you know, everyone's got a green varnish, eco-friendly narrative of some sort. And you suddenly realize where's the authenticity? Where are the ethics? Where's the mindfulness about living a meaningful life? And I get it. I get the testosterone injected, you know, Wall Street capitalist banker who wants to, you know, kill what he eats, what he kills and all the rest of it. I don't agree with it. I think, I think that's a, it's a, there's a massive self-destruct button people press in their obsession for money. And I think more, I think the word more has been hijacked. You know, more doesn't mean more money. More could also mean better. It's just more, if more equated to better, I think a lot more people will be successful. It's just, so there's a conversation on that. And I just took a step back and I said, you know, maybe altruistic values in capitalism need to be bedded in. So it's not about profit. It's about prosperity. It's not about shareholder value. It's working with holders of shared values. So just by flipping the lens on that a little bit, you suddenly realize that your footprint as a human being is a little bit broader than what you thought. It's not just about you your bank account and all the rest of it that you want to do. And it's nobody really gives a damn about you, in my opinion, quite, you know, in the broader scheme of things, you live in your head. So, you know, just to be able to step away and have a degree of humility and say, I'm here for a limited time in life. What, 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 what do I want to do? Do I want to be living a, a sort of materialistic driven life? Or do I want to live a one which creates positive impact? And what's the distinction between the two? And how do you have that conversation? Because a lot of people don't want to don't want to sweat the small stuff. They don't have the stamina to sit in their own company. That's the problem with people. And if you spend some more time with yourself and you actually ponder about it, you'll realize very quickly how ugly or pretty you are. So I think that's really <laughs> what happened to me sitting in Bali. And I realized I didn't like a lot of the things that I was doing. I didn't like the fact that I was, you know, in a way sort of quote unquote, selling sugared water to kids. And then I came back and I said, listen, that's it. We're going to simplify. It took me two years. We halved our team. And it took me two years to do it in a very humane way. And I'm now sort of, sort of doing the things I love till this crisis has arrived where now I'm dealing with that. So it is what a life is. Well, in the pit money though, so, so just to be clear, so simplicity, just to bring that point out, that was the thing that, that what you took away from me. How can I make my life more simple but make a greater impact, a broader impact? Yeah, um, simple and singularity you got you nice. got to simplify it you just gotta you know you you can't you can't i you know and i really fear this because i i've also been the contrarian i've on many occasions you know i own three other businesses that i've invested money in but i think there are three things that one needs to be mindful of you know in a business a great business requires three things uh, outside of obviously the person and people you need you need uh the idea the operations and the money now, if you're doing all three, try and keep it 
try and do all three and keep that as your primary business. But if you ever try and do something else, if you're scaling up or if you're trying to diversify, out of the three, only ever do one. So if it's somebody else's idea, then you can maybe give the money and somebody else operates it. If it's somebody else's operation, you give them money, brand, you get, you get my point. So I do, I love it. Yeah, operations, idea, and money. Try and only do one if it's your secondary proposition of what you're doing. Don't try and do all three all the time and try and it's just it's impossible to do it. You'll end up you'll end up making a mess. Well, it comes back to the point of focus again, doesn't it? I mean, I, someone said to me the other day, it's a quote that's been used for a while, but do you go one inch think one inch thick and a mile wide, or do you go the opposite of that? And the other the other quote was like you can have a a um, uh, a laser beam or you can have a floodlight both of them give light but one has the power to cut through steel yeah okay? and i think that's you know if you take like an, I'm, I'm a student of buddhism so in buddhism they say the tree that bends the most in the storm survives it mm. so and, and what allows a tree to stay rooted is its roots to begin with it doesn't matter how thick your trunk is if you have no roots you're going to get knocked over so i think i think i think you have to be flexible you have to sway but you have to be rooted be like a tree like a bam be like bamboo you know, there's, there's something about that which works. It's, it's cognitively, you can visualize it, what bamboo does. It can move left or right, but it's the strongest grass in the world. You know, grows rapidly, but it's deeply rooted. It's impossible to just dig out. And I think that's, what, that's, the, that's the way to do it, you know. And I, think, and I think you can learn a lot from nature just by, by observing how, you know, animals behave in a similar way. You know? Yeah, well, there is, there is a lot of that, isn't there? I mean, I, you kind of look at the laws of nature and then you kind of think about how we as humans um, try and, for whatever reason, whether it's deliberately, intentionally or not, we try and break those rules. Yeah. But actually, there, there's a lot of learnings. I mean, I go for a walk in the forest every morning with the dog and I, I use that as a time to be present and to connect. And a lot of the time, you know, and, and to have gratitude and all those sort of things. And, and sometimes when I allow myself to slow down and really take that walk in, like down to the minute detail, I get perspectives and clarity on all sorts of other things. Yeah. Really powerful. It's, very hard. it's very hard. You know, it's, it's easier said than done, done to learn to be calm. You know, we're, we're always, always in pursuit of some level of stimuli, right? Whether you check your phone 10 times in a call or whether you're watching, you know, TV and sending a message to somebody. And, and I think just trying to stay still, you know, is, is really, really important. I think, mm. you know, I, I, and I said, I wrote, I was writing a little white paper and I said, you know, you know, God is in the pause and not in the pace. You know, so you, you've got to just pause occasionally because everything is about like, how quickly can I get somewhere? You know, and I think, and I think you've got to have the stamina to stay with the question. I think these are very important things. Everybody, went, oh, I've got an idea. I want to do this tomorrow and, and I'll be faster than everybody else. And, and I'll tell you anything about scaling up or startups. Like one thing I realized, share your idea. Talk about it to the world. Nobody's running away with it because they don't have you. You know, you think, oh, I've got a great idea for a business I'm going to do, but I can't tell anybody. Because if, if I told somebody, somebody else will do it. You know, rubbish. Nobody else will do it. Because but the faster you talk about it, the faster you learn whether it's a stupid idea or it's actually going to work. So I think, I think there's a conversation around that also people have to have. Talk about the right things, ask the right questions. I think that's yeah. really, really important. And, and I sometimes think that the answers live with your team. They're the front line, right? You're, whether you're a plumber with a van and you've got four and a half blokes working for you, they have equal amount of voices and views that need to be heard. I've, and and you know, you've got to listen. I think leadership is also about just being great listeners, right? Just listen, empathy. How do you, you know, if you think about it, Consider yourself as a radio. 
you know, if you're a radio, you, you can only transmit what your antennas pick up. So, so focus on fine-tuning your antenna, not on your transmitter. And I think that's, that's entrepreneurship. And that's the same way you'll pick yeah. up. I, I realize a client of mine has a problem with, let's say, you know, an elevator. You, you do that because your antennas pick up that. You listen to somebody talking about it. Not because you're a genius about figuring out how elevators don't work efficiently. So if you listen properly, you'll find the opportunities that you need to harness. Yeah, I mean, I often say that a lot of things I do, even through this podcast, is a curation. It's a curation of lots and lots of conversations. I have the, the privilege of, of, of getting on calls like this with fun and interesting people. And over 75 interviews now, you know, there's, there's, a, th there's a thread. There's a thread of stuff. But the um, question I want to go back a little bit onto, just because um, it, it struck me, was, was the self-belief and mindset piece we spoke about a few minutes ago. So is that something you've continually thought about and worked on? Obviously, you've had a resilience all the way through to kind of push forward and hustle. But, but to keep on track, to keep that level of strength, all those sort of things, Giraffe, you know, is that something you work on and think about all the time? Or is it just something that is in you? Um. You know, it's, it's, uh, you oscillate between paranoia and positivity as an entrepreneur. That's really what you do. And I think self-belief is, is, is essential. But, but I think self-belief with a degree of humility is essential. I think the day you become arrogant, you know, I've, I've got a very simple philosophy again. Uh, you know, talent that cannot be managed is not talent. It doesn't matter who you are. So I think, I think, I think as an as a entrepreneur... You have to have self-belief. You've got to have, you can listen to people's opinions and you can process and do what you want. You can do exactly the opposite of what people say. I think you need to have a degree of self-belief. You have to have your North Star. You have to have the North Star and you've got to be guided by knowing that, you know, that you are the one holding the sails up. You know, you are the one who's going to drive things forward. So, so for me, I, I think self-belief is very important and, and, and I think optimism layered with that is very important. You know, what? You know, self-belief is not contagious, but, but, but creating happiness is. Positivity is contagious. I can spread it to you. I can make you smile. I can't transfer my self-belief to you. So I think you also have to balance that by understanding that you live in an ecosystem where you have shared responsibilities amongst others. And that sort of, you know, is, it's a balancing act. I don't think it's one single ingredient that defines it. But you have to be stubborn. You have to be confident. You have to be thick-skinned. You've got to get up. You've got to deal with things. And, and I think I've always said, I think, you know, my, my four P's of self-belief is like, it's positivity, paranoia, passion, and persistence. I love that. That's another, that's another book, Guru. You can write a book on that one. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Right. And I'm, and I'm working on a second book, actually. But the, the, the thing is, like, I've always joked about it. I've said, I've got third world hunger and first world tastes. You know, so I will wake up more hungry than any human being on the planet when it comes to doing the things I love. Yeah. That, so it's about hunger that feeds the self-belief. There's no point thinking I'm the best in class and if you want to sit there and, and binge your Netflix series until three o'clock in the morning, then good for you. You have no positive impact in society and neither in your own life. So self-belief is, is, is when, when self-belief is applied, that's when genius happens. Yeah, it's, the I, application. it's definitely that. And, I, and there's, a, there's a thing, I, it took me a little while to realize this, but, you know, if you can spend, if you spend your time in what's called sometimes zone of genius or where you get your energy from, 
usually it's the thing that you'll get up at four in the morning and do. It's the thing that you you want to do. You won't feel that there's a kind of, it's a pull towards you, right? And if you can focus your energy on that stuff, you're going to create your best work. Generally, that work also helps others. And the thing I find is that, you know, the stuff that I, I do, and still some of it now, I don't do as much of it anymore, um, but the stuff that sucks energy from me, the stuff that I just, you know, as soon as it goes into my head, doesn't mean I, I haven't done it or wouldn't do it, but there's going to be someone else out there who can do it better and loves it. And so I've found now that I've scaled my businesses and have a team working with me, I just have people out there doing the stuff they love, but it's the stuff that I'm not great at. <laughs> you know, and, and this, is, this is a great, you know, transition from self-belief to self-awareness. I think if you don't have self-awareness of what you're weak or good at, there's no point having self-belief either. I think there's a, there, yeah. there, there, there are two pieces, two slices of bread that make the sandwich, right? So, so I, think, I, think, I think from my point of view, self-awareness is really, really important. I realize I am rubbish in the middle. I'm great at the beginning. I'm great at the end. I hate the, the granular process-driven admin nonsense in whatever that project might be. So if I surround myself with people who thrive on getting the process right, then suddenly it's a complementing strategy, right? So, yeah. and that's self-awareness, unless you know what you're weak at. I think, you know, sit down and write. I think you should, people, should, I think everybody should be able to do self-confessions. Admit yeah. what you're bad at. You and I are quite similar, actually. I'm the same, because I'm, I'm good at coming up with the beginning. I'm great, I'm great at the idea. I'm great at the vision. And then my business partner, he, he builds the machine. He loves building the mm -hmm. machine. He's like an engineer. He works with precision. And that's I'm great. It's fantastic. Listen, yeah. let's get into, um, as we finish this off, because you've been generous with your time, I want to finish with some stuff around where we are today. So as we record this, obviously COVID-19 is going on. Um, people are, some people are massively um, in, in sort of fear mode still. Um, some of them are hibernating, not knowing how to deal with it. Some people are out there hustling more than they've ever hustled and probably to the extent of over hustling, if that's a, a point. But what's your advice for people who are, you know, from your background of having a successful business, what should people be focusing on right now while they're in this COVID-19 play to, to give themselves the best possible chance to come back or to hit the ground running when the slingshot happens, when things bounce back at some point? Yeah, see, is it, so, you know, there's a threat of oversimplification in, in a conversation like this about what one should do. I think we've got to recognize that there are 7 billion crises happening at the moment. Each human experience with this crisis is different. So there's no one-size-fits-all strategy that can say, if you're doing this, don't do this, don't do the other. So it'll be, it will be reckless to say, here are the, you know, and I've read enough of these top 10 tips that come your way, you know, on what you need to do. I think it'll be reckless to, to sort of just say, here are three things you need to be mindful of because each human economy is different. And it's relevant to your economy, your liabilities, your obligations, where you are in your business life cycle to determine what you need to do. But the things you do need to do is be decisive. I think that's number one. Mm -hmm. Don't sit and procrastinate. I think this is something, this is something which I think, you know, there's an old saying that somebody asked the other guy, said, like, oh, how did you, you were a billionaire, how did you go bankrupt? You know, and the guy says, oh, you know, really slowly and then suddenly. You know, that's what happens. You know, you, you bleed money out and you don't make the decisions you need to. So I think be decisive in whatever you need to do. If you want to hustle, be decisive and hustle. If you decide to hibernate, make a decision and do so. Don't procrastinate. Don't delay the inevitable. I think understand that hope is not a strategy. Hope cannot shape what tomorrow is going to bring to you. You've got to get up and be able to do that. Now, if I was to use common sense, I would say 
First of all, reduce your costs. Whatever you're doing, reduce your costs and contain them. Number two, figure out how much money you've got and figure out how long can you build your runway. If you were spending 100 quid and you lasted three months, can you go down to spending 20 quid and last 10 months? So I think, so first is contract completely, contain costs, and then see how long do you have the money to deploy on this crisis. Number two, have a point of view, your own point of view on when this crisis is going to end. So some people, let's say if some, somebody's a baker, you know, a bakery will be able to sell bread a lot faster than somebody in logistics selling shipped you know, goods internationally. So everyone's horizon on the end of this crisis is very different. Mine is different, yours is different, and the people listening have different horizons. Find yours, find your horizon. For some people, it might be until the end of the year. For some, it might be in August. Some, some it might be 12 months. And then figure out how to manage your money to get you to the end of that horizon. That's, these are the common sense things that you need to do, whether it's a billion dollars or a thousand quid. Common sense, say, do the following. Number two, understand one thing very clearly, that trying to preserve the past is a flawed strategy. What happened before this crisis is not coming back in, in, its, in the same way. So trying to hang on to the past and saying there's going to be a recovery, I'm sorry. The world has changed, and I don't think anything's coming back in a rapid rush. So you have to challenge yourself by saying, where are you going to pivot towards? What's your transformation? What's the new reality? How are people going to behave? We're all 95% bloody emotional beings. Logic doesn't work. You can't game theory your way out of this conundrum. So on a practical level, try and figure out how you're going to retool. So these are the things that I'm sort of looking at. But I also think I'm an optimist. I think it's a great time. We've all been forced. Like We've all been forced to become digital transformation gurus because we all had to do it because we've been forced to, to understand how MS Teams and all these apps and things work to connect to people. So this is a great time to really look deep into your business and, and find out where are the cobwebs, where are things broken, what was working, why were you... And you know, I, I wrote the other day, sometimes in life, the bad days are actually the good days because now you're forced to do things. Yeah. Wow. Mate, that was awesome. So you started off by saying you weren't going to give too much advice on that, but I'll tell you what. <laughs> I have, I have a, um, a, a thing I do every day. I wake up and I say, my day is finished if I do two things, right? Two things. I have to create something and I have to serve someone. If I do that every single day, just, just one of each, then my day is done. Anything else I fill my day with, right, is, is whatever it is. But what's interesting about that is, so I'll create, today I've got a number of podcast interviews, I'm creating something, I'm putting something into the world, our conversation will help lots of people, right? I'm also helping some of my clients and I'm serving them and helping them through their challenges today. And the rest wow. of the time, I'm with my family and the rest of the time, I'm doing other stuff. Amazing. And, Amazing. and that to me helps. It helps me, you know, because you know, everyone goes through their own challenges, but it helps me um, stay focused and stay, um, stay kind of where I need to be through this as well. You know, they say true wealth is what breathes in your arms. It's not what's in your bank account. And, it's, yeah. and you could also say it's a hypocrite's privilege because if you've got the cash, you can say it, right? But, but, I, but I think it's balancing that. It's about, it's about finding a balance between contentment and ambition. It's finding that balance. And, and, and you know, and, and you're always looking for that balance. You know, it's, it's, there's no end to that journey. But the, the thing is that you've got to just enjoy the discovery of it. That's... That's life in principle. That's how you live it. Yeah. No, it is. 
Well, listen, Gaurav, this has been awesome, mate. It's it's kind of just to kind of put some context for the listeners. We've had many many a drink and many a dinner, <laughs> and we've always got into some really really good conversations, which I've said a number of times. We should be pressing play on a, on a on a recorder somewhere because getting that message out there it does help people. I can't see the number of people who get inspired and and, and from from the various people I've had on, and I know from this conversation that. Um, you have absolutely provided that today. So thank you very much for coming on the show, Gary. It's been awesome. It's it's an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to connecting with you soon. And uh, say hi to the family. I certainly will. And one last question before we finish. Where can people find you, Gaurav? Uh, You can go to Gaurav, G-A-U-R-A-V hyphen Sina, S-I-N-H-A dot com. You can just Google Gaurav Sina, write Gaurav Sina Compassion Inc. You can find me through, uh, there's a website which gives you details of my book. If you'd like to read the book, you can buy it on Kindle, iBooks, uh, your local you know, neighborhood bookshop, uh, wherever you'd like. You, you know, just, um, and that's, that's the easiest way. I'm on LinkedIn as Gaurav Sinha. Great. Well, I will put all the links for everything in that into the show notes as well. But as I said, I think some of the stuff you've spoken about today, hasn't, we haven't covered some of that on this show before, so we'll definitely strike a chord. So yeah, thanks again, Gaurav. Wonderful. Thank you so much.